I would like to acknowledge the land on which we recorded this episode, the Darug people as the traditional owners of the Eurora Nation and the Wurundjeri Willem and Boonarong peoples of the Kulin Nation. Australia always was and always will be the land of the first peoples. Hi everyone, welcome to episode four of our VBAC mini-series. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Hazel Keedle. Hazel is a senior lecturer of midwifery at the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Western Sydney University. Hazel has worked in nursing and midwifery for over two decades, and her interests in research focus on vaginal birth after caesarean, birth trauma, and women's maternity experiences explored primarily using feminist mix methodologies. She's now a lead researcher in the biggest study on experiences in maternity care in Australia, the Birth Experiences Study. Hazel starts by sharing her own personal journey to a VBAC. I'd love to provide a little contact warning here as Hazel discusses the obstetric violence and lack of consent taken from healthcare providers during her first birth experience. She talks about how her birth inspired her research in her PhD in which she explores women's experiences of accessing VBAC in Australia. She has recently written her excellent book, Birth After Caesarean, Your Journey to a Better Birth, which I highly recommend for anyone on their own VBAC journey. I've just finished it and I loved it so much. We then delve into topics around choosing the best, most supportive birth team for you on your VBAC journey, myths that exist around home birth, and why the language that is used around VBAC is so important. I'll hand over to the wonderful Hazel now. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. You're welcome. It's great to be here today. Oh, and I'm so excited to talk all things VBAC. You're an amazing woman when it comes to that topic. I'm, I think I sent you a message. I'm almost all of the way through your book at the moment, which has been wonderful to read. And I'm just reading all those beautiful VBAC stories in there, which I'm loving. Yeah, I love. Yeah. I love the fact that they're so in inspiring. there because it gives a nice connection to story as well. Mm. Yeah, and storytelling so so important and hearing empowering stories of how people had their VBACs is yeah, is makes all the difference. Absolutely. Well, thank you for everything that you bring to the world for people trying to have VBACs and having VBACs. I think it's yeah, there's a lot of pushback in the system out there. So yeah, it's amazing what you're doing. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. It's a real um, <laughs> I guess, journey of discovery for myself and certainly from my own journey as well. So I didn't, I don't think I, when I started off, ever imagined it would, you know, result in a book for women, women, but, you know, I'm very proud that it has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such an amazing resource. Could you start by telling us about your own feedback journey, what your experience of your first birth, which you had a C-section in, and then, yeah, how did you do everything on your feedback journey? Sure. So back in 2007, I was um, a newly read, wed, um, and pregnant with my my first baby and my husband's um, one, two, three, fourth baby. Uh, and I assumed that I would have a home birth because I was part of the local home birth group. Um, I was a brand new midwife. I was only a new graduate midwife. So I was in my first year being qualified. And yeah, I I booked a private midwife. There wasn't really many around. There was only one to choose from at the time. Um, So I booked her and that's what I was doing. That's what I was planning. You know, I had everything planned for for a home birth. But then at 32 weeks or 33 weeks, I think I'd just taken maternity leave from work and working as a midwife is a busy, full-on job. So I'd taken maternity Mm -hmm. leave um, on maybe 34 weeks and I within a week, I think was back in the hospital that I worked in with severe pneumonia. And I was really quite sick. Um, and, you know, I had to have all the antibiotics and everything. And then went home and within a few weeks, um, had a spontaneous rupture of membranes. And he was breached, although I had suspected he was breached, but my home birth midwife had said that she felt comfortable with that. And then um, 
when I was when she came in in the morning and I'd been just laboring beautifully all night she did a vagina examination said your breach I'm not supporting this we've got to go to the local hospital and that was devastating because I knew at that hospital because it was the one that I worked at that they did not support breach vaginal birth but there wasn't really anywhere at that point in in the area that I lived or even all the way down to the major city that would support vaginal breach birth back then I mean in in New South Wales we've now only we've still only got two places that do and they're both in the city so you know I knew that this would mean an a cesarean and when I got up there and they said you know they did the did an ultrasound and he was in a perfect position like bum down feet up by his ears and he was small and I was only 37 weeks um and the obstetrician said oh this would be a great a perfect vaginal breech birth but let's go for cesareans now and, and that was really quite mm. devastating um, and then afterwards she told me oh you'd be a great candidate for a VBAC next time because you got to eight centimeters and I said, how do you know that? And she goes, oh, I did a vagina examination in theatres. And now I had never gave consent for that vagina examination. Mm. And it didn't really hit me at the time. Um, but many years later, I was like, oh, okay, that's that's obstetric violence because that was an unconsented vagina mm. examination. And not only did she not get my consent to do it, but she didn't give me any options to do anything with that information. I was eight centimetres. Like I could have just said, stop. Mm. Like <laughs> I want, I want to keep going for a little yeah. bit longer and push him out. But I wasn't ever given that option. So I didn't do great after my first cesarean, both physically and psychologically. Within a week, um, I was back in again, this time with endometritis, which is an infection of the womb. So yet another hospital stay for this planned home birth. Um, and I was really sick and I was there trying to look after my newborn baby whilst being in hospital, rigged up to antibiotics. And, you know, we used to call that childbed fever and women used to die for it. So I'm very grateful for the fact that I could have the antibiotics, but then again, we've got a rise in endometritis because of our rise in cesarean rates. So, you know, it's like chicken and egg. Um, and mm -hmm. then I, yeah, I, I loved having my newborn baby. Like I absolutely adored him. He was so gorgeous and I was able to breastfeed him. Um, but I did also struggle with, you know, I, I remember waking up during the night and I was breastfeeding him and looking at him and just thinking, how, how do I know he's actually mine? because I didn't feel him come out of me. And then he was just passed to me. And it was a weird sensation, a weird feeling. But, you know, I've, I've since spoken to more women who have experienced that as well. And that's that kind of, you know, not going through the, the vaginal birthing experience and then being the first person to hold him was, was really quite traumatic. So uh, the, then the unplanned happened, as in I got pregnant really quickly. And I worked out that, um, well, I, I worked out that I was pregnant and then I had an ultrasound because I'd had no periods and I was already two to three months pregnant, which when I worked out the dates wow. would mean there's, there'll be 14 months in between pregnancies, or in between births, sorry. So I went down another spiral thinking, well, how am I going to have a vaginal birth now? There's no one that's going to support me. There's going to be this short interpregnancy interval. And I spent a weekend with my head in the books and my head in the, in the research papers that were around back then, which is early 2008. And I spent the weekend reading. And, you know, when you've got your head in figures and you see something like less than 1% and then it goes up to 1.4 or 1.8 and then all the way up to 2.7, that seems like a massive jump, Right from say 0 0.2 to 2.7 when that's when that's the numbers that you're working in and then you're seeing it's double the risk or triple the risk and you're like oh my god that sounds so risky and so less than six months between um cesarean and then conception was the highest you try and rupture risk and it was 2.7 percent and I went out to my husband and I went well that's it you know all my dreams of having a vaginal birth are gone and he's like, why? And I said, because it's 2.7%. And he went, well, that gives you more than 97% chance of it not happening. It's far more dangerous to get in the car and drive to the hospital where you're more likely to die from a car accident. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll adopt <laughs> his rationale more than uh, mine or the medical profession. And I decided at that point, well, I'm going to have a VBAC and I plan to have a VBAC at home. Um, but at that point, that midwife had retired, which was probably good because I didn't really trust her at that point. But there was no other midwives around. So I had to kind of rally together a group of like a, some friends and a doula. Um, and that was my plan. But 
fast forward, you know, to, to going into labour. I went into labour, so which means I was only 13 months in between and my team couldn't be there. So I was at home and I went, well, I wasn't very comfortable being at home. So I transferred into a, a different hospital because they did do VBACs. Um, and then I had to fight for seven hours to, you know, I was told that we're going to take you to theatres at four o'clock. And I was told whilst I had a vaginal examination that don't you know we had a baby die recently from a uterine rupture whilst I was mm. in the most vulnerable position a woman can be in with her hands inside me. Mm. Um, I was told that I was too quiet. I was told that I was too loud. I was just, I could never be perfect enough because I wouldn't agree to go to theatres and that's what they wanted. And made my, you know, I was basically a, abandoned during labour, which was probably a good thing because at least then they weren't harassing me. But whenever they came in, it was to harass me and it was to say, we need to go to theatres. Um, and then I just, I had a friend come down to help me last minute and I went through transition and then I just started pushing. Um, and I was fierce with my pushing, sitting on a birthing stall with my husband behind me, grabbed onto me. I said, don't let go. There were even midwives either side of me trying to pick me up to get me onto the bed because the doctor said get her on the bed, but I wouldn't. I refused to, and I pushed her out sitting on this birthing stool, and uh, her time of birth was 4 o'clock. So, you know, that time of the, they're going to take me to theatres, it was a bit of a, no, you're not, I'm going to push her out of my vagina <laughs> instead at that time. But it was like I guess I was left with, or I was left with amazement. I felt instantly healed from all the trauma I'd been through before. But I was also angry. Like I was angry that I was a midwife and they knew that I was a midwife because I trained at that hospital. And yet I had to fight so hard for it. And I was treated disrespectfully. And I thought, how does any other woman who doesn't have the knowledge of being a midwife get through that? Like, how does any other woman have a VBAC in Australia? And I also wondered, did other women feel as, ma as amazing as I did or was it just because I was a birth nerd? Um, and I came from a lineage of my granny being a midwife, so I'd been around it during my life. That, you know, is that why I felt so amazing? So that's really what started my, my research journey was those two questions, you know, just how does any other woman have a VBAC in Australia? And secondly, um, do they feel as amazing as I did? Oh, good on you. I'm so, yeah, that's such an inspiring story. But yeah, I can completely understand why you felt <laughs> so angry afterwards. Can you tell us about how how that inspired that passion in you to continue working as a midwife and then you worked as a home birth midwife for a while? Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So yeah. I went back into you know working at the local hospital and you know this had still sparked my interest in home birth, there was a bit of grieving I had to go through in the fact that I'd never been able to have a home birth and we didn't plan on having any more children. Um, I'd had one of each and my husband had three other children as well as these two that all lived at home with us, so we had full custody. So it was a big household of five children. So I'd gone yeah. from being a single woman <laughs> at the age of 29 to being a mum of five by the age of 30, 31. Wow. Yeah. So it was a bit of a, yeah. a crazy time. Um, so I knew that she was my last last planned baby and she was my last baby. So then I, it was hard in the, being part of the home birth world at that point because you kind of felt like, well, where do I belong? Because I, kind of, I kind of felt like I didn't belong in the home birth arena because I hadn't done that. But I also didn't really belong in the hospital era group because I hadn't wanted to go there. <laughs> so that was a bit of a challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think I kind of worked through that by being a home birth midwife. So by the time my daughter was only, um, so my feedback baby, my daughter was only seven months old, I was, I was being asked to be a home birth midwife. And, um, and she was there for, for that experience um, whilst I was breastfeeding her. And that was an amazing, like, you, you know, walk out of your first home birth, just like, oh, my God, that was just amazing to see women in their own environment do what their body can naturally do was that just kind of got me hooked so I slowly kind of got it started taking on more women and reducing my hours at the hospital to the point that I then left altogether um, and was doing um, home birth alongside other jobs as well like I worked in a birthing centre and then I removed and I worked in a regional centre um, so but I was always doing home birth on the side and for, uh, sometimes I was doing just 
home birth as well. And I think doing home birth, um, being a home birth midwife kind of gave me that other viewpoint of what birth can be, of what, what birth can do to women, to women and their families, because I saw the most amazing healing births. You know, I, I worked with women that had been through so much trauma, a variety of trauma from, you know, childhood traumatic incidences all the way through to previous traumatic birth. And being in that relational care model where you're following that woman all the way through, um, you know, I got to see when it worked. I mean, I'll be honest, I got to see when it didn't work as well. And when, you know, when it's a relationship and those relationships don't work out, that can be challenging. But you work through that as a midwife and then you think, well, how can I do that better next time? Um, and so it's a constant state of learning um, as well. And I love that. You know, for, for many years I did, I did home birth midwifery um, and midwifery in, in, in different areas as well um, and in regional locations. And, you know, I'd be driving all the way around this massive area of New South Wales and being the only home birth midwife in that area. So it was an amazing time. Um, there was a lot of driving and a lot of, um, you know, time to think. But I was able to bring home birth to an area that hadn't had home birth in a long time. And when I left, I'm, I'm really grateful now to look, at, look towards the area and I've been supporting new home birth midwives coming through. So there's actually, you know, there was a time where there wasn't any because I, I left, but in that time there were, there were midwives that were starting out and looking at doing it and now, now that area has more midwives. Yeah, great. Yeah, I've noticed there's an upsurge of women and people choosing to opt for home births in the recent years, but there's still a lot of pushback I guess I guess around home birth in general there's a lot of fear that you can get if you if you talk to people about your own desire to have a home birth you can get people questioning that and all of those things could you talk to us a little bit about you know what are some of those myths that come up around home birth and how can we dispel these yeah absolutely I think people in the age of home birth not being the norm um, and it really being, you know, such such a, it, in general, such a low number uh, across Australia um, that obviously when something's not popular, um, there are lots of myths around it and the thought that every baby should be born in hospital isn't something that was historically out there. It's something that's been brought into, um, into society as medicalisation of birth has increased and that hasn't always been a great a great thing I was just listening to a podcast this morning about the NHS and how medicine now doesn't look like it did when the NHS first started because of you know the, the age of technology and all these things and it made me instantly think well that is true but actually women's bodies haven't changed and women haven't changed and the way to push a baby out hasn't changed and maybe because of that vast change that's been going on in, in the med, in the medical profession and the medicalization they're trying to superimpose that onto um onto the maternity space and onto women uh, to the detriment most of the time uh, to women so i guess some of the some of those um, myths are that, uh, that it is inherently dangerous and you know we've got the studies out there to prove that it really isn't um, and that women that have have had a previous baby and then having having a baby, um, a second baby or or more at home, it is just as safe for them as it would be to birth in a hospital, if not safer because there's less intervention rates which can cause that cascade of intervention to occur and then end up with more, um, more issues uh, for both women and the baby. The other myth that I hear a lot was, you know, you wouldn't want to do that for your first. You don't know what's going to happen. You should go to the hospital for your first. And, well, I must say some of the births that I really, I mean, I enjoyed all the births, but, you know, some that really stood out was when I was with women who were having their first. And I would say, well, just get your first right. And if you get your first right, it's going to impact all your others. And it was so true. When you when you um, worked alongside a woman who was having their first baby in the mindset of being nurtured and cared for by a private midwife or their own midwife, um, and then to go on to have that baby at home, you know, it really it had a positive impact. 
Um, and the alternative could be that, well, you get to 39 weeks, you're told that you need to have an induction, you have the cascade of intervention, you have a cesarean. Well, there you go. That was your alternative in a hospital. So, yeah, I think do it at home. There are slightly higher transfer rates from for first-time mums from um, home to hospital, but that doesn't actually equate into higher cesarean rates. So, and that makes sense, right? Because women having their first baby, it can take longer. And therefore, sometimes when it takes longer, there's more time for complications to arise. And then, you know, there can be reasons to transfer in. But they still have better, better outcomes. Um, and the same for VBAC. So, you know, there's also the thought that if you've had a cesarean, then you shouldn't be birthing at home. And it's hard to find many policies that would approve that too. Um, but... It's the same issue. There's slightly higher transfer rates, but there aren't worse outcomes, especially if you've got good, you've got a good um, transfer protocol. So if the midwife feels comfortable to be able to transfer to the local hospital because uncomfortable means that she's not going to get bullied the moment she gets there by the other midwives or managers, and there's good communication between, you know, the home birth midwife and the hospital um staff and management and the doctors and that she's believed and she's treated well because they're all reasons why home birth midwives fear transfers uh, then and that she's treated like a professional um then there's very little um worse outcomes i think it's a really amazing option it doesn't mean it's for everyone i mean home's not a safe space for everyone and we have to recognize that as well and that's where i think we need to have good alternatives such as birthing centres that are separate from the hospital that, that offer continuity of care and offer a home-like environment for those that either don't feel comfortable being at home or maybe home is not a safe space or not a, not a space that, is, that they feel comfortable birthing in. So there's, you know, you know it's not for everyone, um, but it certainly should be made an option for more women in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that finances come into that as well because home birth is not accessible for everybody. You know, it, it is a privilege to be able to hire an independent midwife and go down that route. A lot of people, just, yeah, they just cannot afford that and have to opt for that hospital system. And then there's, you know, the public hospital system, there's minimal, the MGP programs are really quite hard to get into. So there's minimal choice for women and that's yeah, that's really challenging. Well, I think the essence of that is that you, that every woman should have access to a continuity of care midwife that cares for them throughout pregnancy, labour and birth and postnatally. And then on top of that, the woman should be able to choose whether she does that in a home environment or in a hospital environment. You know, that should be, if I had a magic wand, that's what I would do, is that every woman could have mm-hmm. access to continuity of care midwife. Um, and, then, and then choose her birth location through that journey you know it shouldn't be that that the choice of birth location impacts the type of model of care that you go for it should just be that every woman has continuity of care with a midwife now obviously I did work as a privately practicing midwife because there was no publicly funded home birth in the area that I worked in and even now there's only two or three in New South Wales and they're very much centered into the Sydney area uh, and so anywhere in the regional, and I worked in regional for quite a few years, there's just not that option. And then there are less midwives in those areas areas as well. And midwives, you know, surprisingly, we also need to eat and we also need to have a house <laughs> and live and mm-hmm. have a family often. And it's expensive, right, just to live in the world. So then midwives who are working privately have to charge a fee. Now, there are some Medicare yeah. rebates that, women can get access to for antenatal appointments and for postnatal appointments, not quite yet for the birth. Um, but they are minimal compared to what the cost of living is. So then there's the out-of-pocket fees and the labour and birth fee and everything else that comes on, which does mean that these fees come up. And that can definitely be a barrier uh, for women. And I think um, I'm not sure if many home birth midwives would be happy that I say this, who are private midwives. But I think mm-hmm. that's one, an area that I, that I found challenging because I had come from a background where my granny was a community midwife for everyone. And then they would choose where they birth and most of them would be birthing at home. 
and it was free. And then to, mm. to then be a private midwife where I had to, you know, charge women and, and obviously my work, my, my work was worth it, but it was a challenge. And so definitely there were times where I was um, uh, negotiating different things um, in, in lieu, which I'm glad that I was able to do, but it wasn't always, it never made me a good businesswoman, that's for sure. So it certainly can be a challenge and it should be available to everyone and I think that's something that we need to work towards and that also means in remote communities for our First Nations sisters so that they have that option um, to birth on their country on their terms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, we ultimately have decided to opt for a home birth. We, I was going to go through the public hospital that we went through last time but I just got this really strong gut intuition that this just was not going to be the place you know that's where I'd had my first cesarean and I was completely railroaded by the cascade of interventions I didn't <laughs> I didn't really realize I just similar to you I thought that you know I would just be able to have this birth that was just a vaginal birth it would all there'd be no complications whatsoever and then that happened but yeah so we've decided that you know the cost of hiring a private midwife and a doula is ultimately going to be worth it because how I have this birth is so important to me and how I organize this care team. Could you share with us some evidence around feedbacks in the hospital system and at home? Well, there's not a whole lot out there, to be honest. Uh, There was, you know, a big study done in America that showed there was slightly higher um, worse neonatal outcomes, but they do identify that there were, wasn't very good transfer um, protocols. And so that is something that, mm-hmm. you know, you need to have set up, like, you know, where would you be going if you need to? And I think, you know, we, we have very limited research out there about VBAC and models of care. Um, you know, there was one that was done in Sydney that really didn't show any any difference in um in outcomes as in increasing feedback rates between a a continuity model and a non-continuity model. But when you dig into that study, which had the potential to be so amazing, um, that the continuity wasn't continuity. Often some of the women met more midwives in the continuity models than they met in the Mm non-continuity models. Um, And it was very, and they didn't always have the same midwife for labour and birth either. So it wasn't really comparing continuity to non-continuity. It was just kind of comparing non-standard antenatal care with a continuity model that wasn't working very well. Um, so, you know, <laughs> that that is a shame, um, but it does show actually as a spotlight, which I think would have been great to have written about um, more, is a spotlight on how continuity needs to be managed better and the problems that they were having with it in the system. Um, so, but... In my research, I did look at, when I did my national um, VBAC survey across Australia, I did look at how women felt. Um, it wasn't just so much, it wasn't about VBAC rates because I was retrospectively asking women to report how they, about, about all these different questions. But I started to think, is it just about pushing a baby up through the vagina or is there more to it? And certainly when I went into my first research study was women's experiences of having a VBAC at home. And then I went straight into my PhD. And certainly at the beginning of my PhD, I thought it's all about the vagina. Like this woman just got to push a baby out of the vagina and she will feel better. And then I did a qualitative side where I followed women throughout their research, throughout their pregnancy. So they were planning a VBAC in a variety of locations with a variety of different practitioners. And then I, they did recordings for me after every appointment and then I interviewed them at home after they'd had their baby as well. And I, there were a couple of interviews that I did and reflecting on their stories that I thought, you know what, these two women both had repeat emergency caesareans that fully dilated. And yet how they felt about it when I interviewed them was so vastly different there's something else in it. And that's when I use the research process of narrative analysis to compare their stories. And that's when these four factors came out. And it was actually how women felt across these four factors 
that impacted how she felt after her birthing experience. And that was feeling in control, um, or having control, having confidence, having an active labour and having a relationship. And that, by relationship, I mean a, a good quality, continuity relationship. And those who felt that they were kind of high above those four scales, they felt much better regardless of the type of birth they had. And if they felt low across those four scales and they would potentially feel devastated or disappointed regardless of birth outcome. And now that I do research in more research in birth trauma and obstetric violence for all women, I can see why that would happen. You know, what if you had planned this, this VBAC, all your effort was on this VBAC, and it was all about pushing a baby up through your vagina and then you experience obstetric violence during that time. You know, where do you belong? And it, and it tapped into how I felt about do I belong to the home birth camp or do I belong to the, to the hospital camp? You know, where do you go when you don't have a good VBAC? And so that's, you know, really interesting journey that I went on that, that, you know, ultimately resulted in that book. So then comparing that against, you know, your original question was, you know, be back to hospital versus be back at home. What that comes down to more is that is you've made a decision to have a baby at home. And you, so that's your control thing. You're making your decision to do that and you're doing all the things that you can to be more confident in doing that. By being at home, you're planning to be active in labor because you're not going to have people saying, get on that bed, I need to monitor you for the next six hours. Like you're going to be able to be upright and mobile. You're going to be able to go into the shower, go and sit on the toilet. You're going to be able to get into the bathroom, into the birthing pool when you're ready. And that means you can be mobile the whole time. So actually what you're doing is you're ticking all those boxes for those four factors. And then ultimately you've chosen a care team at, who are going to support you in that. And they offer continuity by both having a doula and by having a midwife. So you've selected your team. So you've actually just set yourself up to feel great about your experience regardless of what happens. Now, obviously, it all comes down to the labour and birth part as well. And you have to, there is a point during your pregnancy where you've got to go, you know what? I might not be able to have a VBAC at home. And what happens if I have to go to the hospital? And what happens if I have to have a cesarean? And that ugly stuff has to be looked at. And that's why I have that in the control factor of my book about, you know, looking at your birth plan and, mm. you know, you're looking at your different alternatives. So I think the ultimate thing is, you know, it, it can be the same having a VBAC at home as it can be having a VBAC in the hospital if, that's, if that means that you're in control of the situation and that those decisions have gone, come down to you. You're not being bullied into having a home birth. You're not being bullied into having a hospital birth. You're making the choices that is best for you. And that's what we're not very good at across maternity care. We tend to want to take that control off women and say, you know what, you don't know anything, so we're going we're gonna to tell you what to do. Or we don't make those options available, and that's the same as controlling women because when you don't have options available, then you can't make a choice. And you can't make an informed choice. So I, it, that's kind of where I come from with that. And, and certainly from my national survey, when I looked at women who had continuity of care with a midwife and there was a large proportion who'd had a home birth, they felt like they, that they had more control, that they felt that they had more confidence, not only in their own ability, but in their healthcare providers' confidence in them having a birth, a vaginal birth. They had a better active labour and more likely to have an upright birth. And they were more likely to have a relationship with a healthcare provider that was based on trust and equity. And so therefore they had a better birthing experience. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Coming back to that. So in terms of healthcare providers, it's obviously so important for women to have choice in, in who they go with, having a team that's supportive of their VBAC. Can you give us, you've got some lovely evidence in your book, but can you talk to us about uh, the evidence with VBACs and care providers. So if someone's choosing, they're choosing to go down the VBAC journey, they're thinking, do I want to go public? Do I want to go private? Do I want to hire an obstetrician? Do I want to try and get into a midwifery-led care program? What does the evidence tell us in, in relation to VBAC rates? What is going to be the best for someone hoping? Well, hoping again, we haven't got a lot on VBAC rates, but we can have a look at what's going on across our hospital systems. So when we look at, um, you know, VBAC rates in Australia are poor. 
you know, that it's been sitting around about 12%. And I hate to say it, that in, in the Mothers and Babies report that came out recently, which would have been then for 2021, um, because always two years behind, um, mm. the VBAC rate dropped for the first time and it was sitting at about 10%. Mm. And we've been sitting up at 12%. And that's interesting, right, because that's in the thick of COVID. In the middle of COVID, that rate's gone down. I mean, it's, it's marginal, but it's still there. Um, and, you know, I was double-checking that for a paper the other day that I'm writing. I'm like, oh, no, it really did go down, didn't it? Uh, and so mm. that means we're just not very good at supporting women planning a VBAC because it's, you know, when 90% of women are having a repeat cesarean. Well, there's about 2% that have an instrumental birth on top of that. So we'd say 88% of women are, are, are having a repeat cesarean. That's the norm. So first of all, you're kicking against the norm. And then you've got to look at where are those VBAC rates higher. And when we separate out uh, in, in Australia our private hospitals compared to our public hospitals, there's a significant difference. So our private hospitals, you know, they might be as down as lowers zero percent up to maybe eight percent like they're they're really low <laughs> um and i know when i looked at the new south wales data not that long ago um it was averaging on 5.8 percent i think and I'm, i put a post well, a long time oh, oh, a couple of years ago on my in social media on that i made a little post for it so and that was then the the public rate was sitting at about 14 percent when you separate them out so that is quite big. That's still ridiculously low, but it was, you know, there's a big difference mm. between the two. So that is suggestive to say that if yeah. you went to a private hospital, which is private obstetric care, you know, your rates are low. And we've recently been working on a paper, it's not been published yet, where we actually analysed the feedback data from a public hospital, uh, a private hospital, sorry, and the rates were just so low. It was hard to even analyse the data because, you know, <laughs> the numbers are just... So it's low that women are just not being offered. Women are not being offered it, um, and it's not an option. And then, may, you know, we the things we don't always know what's going on in between. You know, we, when we look at rates, it only gives you one picture. So then you've got to take a step back and go, well, what is it that I want from my healthcare provider? Like, really, if you want someone who's great at surgical birth, then you want an obstetrician. Because in all my years of being a midwife, I don't want to do cesareans, and I don't. The closest I got was being a second in an emergency, and the obstetrician was thrilled with the fact, oh, this is so amazing for you. And I was thinking, oh, I'm not that thrilled at all, to be honest. <laughs> Give me a vagina birth <laughs> any day. Um, surgical birth was not something that took my fancy. I did not want to be a surgeon. I wanted to be a midwife. So what is the philosophy behind our amazing obstetric colleagues that are amazing at their jobs and the philosophy behind midwifery and obviously in private obstetrics you know we need them for our complications and I'm glad that I was able to transfer on to our obstetric colleagues when it was needed so in women who have you know real medical challenge I'm not a fan of the term risk but real medical challenges um, that need that come with maybe more medical challenges to begin with or develop them during pregnancy or labour and birth or postnatally. And I'm so glad that we have a system that we can refer when needed. But that's the complex stuff. And if you're wanting a vaginal birth, well, that's not complex. That is you want someone who is, is very skilled at supporting you during labour and birth that understands the importance of being active and upright and moving and understanding how a baby, you know, comes through the pelvis. And actually, even with all that, it's not as important as them understanding you. And that kind of continuity of care where during pregnancy you see that midwife for much more than a 10-minute appointment eight times. You might see them for an hour plus eight times. Then obviously they're going to get to know you a lot more than someone that only offers 10-minute appointments. And that's relationship-based care, right? Relationships take time when we usually, um, unless it's an, maybe an arranged marriage, but, you know, usually in our Western culture, we get to know someone before we dive into a <laughs> potentially lifelong relationship. And that's called dating. And it's, you know, in, in maternity, that's called your antenatal <laughs> appointments. 
And as a private midwife, that was turning up, sitting down, have a nice cup of tea, you know, having a good chat about what's been going on since the last appointment, finding out what happened last time, really digging deep and getting to know the family, playing with the kids, chatting to the partner, usually getting to know so many of the family if, if that person has a large family. And that's, that's being a, a midwife and that's being part of community. And that's very different kind of setup that you would get with a private obstetric care. So really, like, what kind of care do you want? Do you want someone who comes from a normal birth physiology background or someone who comes from a surgical background? Now, if you're planning a repeat cesarean or if you have, a, you know, more complex complex background or complex pregnancy, then and you can afford because you've got private health insurance, a private obstetrician, then go for it. But be aware that those feedback rates are not as high generally. Yeah, definitely. I listened to an episode where you spoke on the midwives' cauldron. You were speaking about this and you mentioned this in your book as well around the language that people often come up against in regards to VBAC. You know, there's VBAC success, VBAC failure. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, trial of labor, even so many of these terms kind of make, can make us feel like our bodies are the ones that have failed. Like with my, with my labor, I had a really long 45 hour labor and um, a posterior baby. And on my notes, it was labeled as like failure to progress. And that word failure is just such like a, an awful word to see there. It just feels like you have failed and your body's failed and you've failed your baby. Yeah, can you speak about how the language that we use discussing VPAC can impact a person's perception of their experience and then what some alternative terms or approaches you suggest that we can use to move away from this success-failure mindset? Absolutely. The, um, the language is a big thing for me because it's, it, it comes from the negative language really does come from that medical viewpoint and it's it's just so damaging because um, you know we hear it from such a young age, right? Even if we're not being told by people that we love, we're seeing in the media that our bodies are not perfect. I mean, perfect doesn't actually exist because it's an you know it's a it's a photoshopped version of reality. But we would have had it growing up, and I think even more so for our generations coming through the, uh, our digital natives that see this from a young age on, you know, on social media. But, you know, even in my older age, we certainly saw it on TV all the time. You know, you, you, had, to be, you had to be something that your body can't be because you just didn't have the genetics for it. But you would have to aim to be like that. You know, you're either, you're either too big or you're too skinny and your boobs are too big or they're misshapen or they're not big enough. Um, and your butt's either not big or it's not round enough. Like <laughs> you just can't, you can't get it right. And then you go into having your first baby and your bump becomes public property and people that you don't even know come up and touch you, which is just like, mm, no way. hated that. <laughs> you know, it's awful. It's mm. like suddenly you, your body becomes this, this public commodity. And then you go through you know, maternity care and you get this discombobulated language that separates your body into a whole bunch of parts. And that's where you get told, you know, well, we need to induce you. And so we're going to induce you. And then we're going to do all these things to you. Oh, and then you failed to progress when that happened. Um, or your pelvis was too small or your cervix wasn't made to dilate. I mean, that seems ridiculous. How do you think a woman gets pregnant in the first place um, if <laughs> it doesn't have a cervix that knows the natural cycles? <laughs> you know, it, it dilates and closes throughout your cycle. Um, but apparently that cervix didn't know how to do that. And all these ridiculous, <laughs> hurtful comments that people will just it's defensive care. So the healthcare provider is doing it in a way to explain what's happened. But then the, um, the woman, well, what do you do with that language? I mean, you've taken that language with you. You don't know what they said in the, in the next sentence, but you know the fact that they said you were a failure to progress. And the progress bit doesn't really come into it. You just take on board that you're a failure. And that 
just, you know, reinforces everything that you believed in your body as well. Well, maybe I just wasn't made for, for birthing a baby. Maybe I just can't do it. And then there's breastfeeding and it's really painful. Maybe I'm not meant to be able to do this. Maybe I can't do this. Or someone grabs your breast and grabs the baby onto your breast and manhandles you without even asking permission. There's so much where, you know, our bodies are just abused by maternity professionals um, and that lives with us. We have to live with that as women. And then you want to, in time, you either whether it's accidentally or whether it was of mine because I wasn't planning on getting pregnant so quickly um, or it's planned that you have another you know have another pregnancy and you feel like you've got to go back into that war zone and how am I going to do that and so then we internalize it I think you know men do this as much as women do but I think we we know that we do it as women is we internalize that pain and we blame ourselves we don't look at the system and go God, that system is well and truly screwed up. And I was a product of that system. We don't look at it that way. We'll go, well, I failed that, didn't I? Maybe I didn't, maybe it was my fault that I didn't book a doula, or it was my fault that I didn't find a midwife, or I should have rung the clinic earlier to get onto the program, or it was my fault that I didn't stand up to them. Like, how are you meant to do that against this, this patriarchal system when you're put right at the bottom? And so then you go into that next pregnancy and you've got all that trauma and in my survey it was there was two out of three women experienced a traumatic cesarean or experienced their cesarean to be a traumatic experience and usually it's one out one out of three women which is way too high as it is um but you know Mm -hmm. we we could double that with with women who've had a previous cesarean so you know it really made me think about the language and first of all well I don't like the language around trial of labour or trial of scar because we are not on trial. And I first read that in the amazing book from the (laughs) 1980s called um, The Silent Knife, which I was given once I'd had my first cesarean. And it was from the 1980s, bless her, hasn't been updated. Um, (laughs) But they described this amazing scene of, you know, the woman who is on trial after having a previous cesarean and your scar is on trial, but obviously that's, you know, it's attached to your body, so it's you on trial. And then you get to a point where there's a judge and jury and the judge throws down the gavel (laughs) and says, that's it, you are guilty for trying to have a vaginal birth. Off to theatre you go. (laughs) And one, women are not criminals for wanting to push a baby out of your vagina. That does not make you a criminal. It just makes you a woman Mm -hmm. wanting to to (laughs) use the physiological processes that you were given. So you're not a criminal. So we've got to take the word trial out because when we think of trial, we think of, you know, the criminal trial. Um, So we have to take that word out. And then also we're not just testing the scar. We're testing how good you – we're really testing the medical profession and the maternity profession really on how good you are at supporting the woman. Because the chance of having uterine rupture really is low. It's not zero, and women will share their stories of uterine rupture, and that's important because it will and it can happen. But it doesn't mean it's going to be, and it's less than 1% of women that will experience that. So it's not, it shouldn't be about putting the woman on trial. It's more about, as a service, are you going to give her the best options available to be able to have a vaginal birth? Then, you know, the success mm-hmm. feedback is interesting and it's it's hard to change that one a bit but the reason I I've I highlight it is because for every success well what is that there's a failure for every woman that has a successful Mm -hmm. feedback which is fantastic and please do shout it from the rooftops share it on social media let me know and tell me your birth story and I'll share it on my social media (laughs) like I love that but if we use the term success, then that means that we're looking at another sister of ours and saying, well, you failed because you didn't do that. And that's not helpful because then that's, where then do you go? You plan for VBAC and then you, apparently you failed because she succeeded and you didn't. So you failed and then again, your body has failed you all over again. But actually, was it that you failed or was it that the healthcare providers didn't give you enough time or didn't give you, didn't encourage you to be upright and mobile? Um, pushed you into having an epidural so you couldn't do those things Uh, or you didn't have the support team around you to be able to get through those really challenging contractions like there's lots of other reasons why 
a VBAC might not result, a plan VBAC might not result in a VBAC. And we've got to take the success and failure out of it. So I just use language which is just descriptive. You know, the woman planned a VBAC, she had a VBAC. She felt great about it. <laughs> she planned a VBAC, she had a repeat emergency cesarean. She felt great about it because you actually can. If you were the, if you, and you've ticked every single box that you have wanted to do to be active in labor and you've done all your other boxes as well for control, confidence, active labor and relationship. And maybe you've been pushing for two hours and your support team and the team around you are going, it's okay, Bub's okay, you're okay, we can keep going, we can keep going. And the woman turns around and says, you know what, I can't feel any descent. I know that baby's not coming down into my pelvis. It's not happening. I don't want to do this anymore. I'd like to go for a cesarean now. Oh, my God, is she a failure? Is she a failure for doing absolutely everything and then making a choice to go to have a, have a repeat cesarean? No, she's not a failure. She is a brave, amazing queen who has been in control and turned around and went, you know what, I gave it my best shot. It's not happening. Come on, everyone. I want to go. Uh, it's not my ideal. I get that. But let's go for a cesarean now. That's my choice. So that's not a failure. Mm. And that's why we've got to take that language out of it. If the woman at the end, and this is also why we've, I think we've, we've got to take the focus off the feedback rates and more about how the woman feels after her experience. And if we focused on control, confidence, active labor and relationship, we actually will increase the feedback rates. But we don't need to focus on that. What we need to focus on is if, how does a woman feel after that? Because if she feels more traumatized because she experienced obstetric violence, then what are we doing right? I don't think we've gained anything from that. And then she feels that she's got nowhere to be able to share mm -hmm. her story. So, I, you know, I think it's more, I think we've got to look more at that bigger experience. And that's why I focused on those four factors in the book. Yeah, oh, amazing. And yeah, that's so important like how how someone feels about it and feeling like they have that agency and choice like in that story you shared you know the woman's she's chosen like she's she's planned for a VBAC and then she's ended up having a cesarean but the way she would feel about that is so different yeah. than being told this is going to happen to you now <laughs> absolutely and yeah. where can she then share that experience because you know potentially mm -hmm. on some some groups the VBAC groups, they might be like, I don't want to hear that, blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, you had a piece of area mm -hmm. and you're not part of us anymore. Like it's, it's very hard. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we have as human beings this massive desire to belong, don't we? And if you're a little bit different, um, if you're neurodiverse or you've got a disability or you're, you know, you come from a different cultural background, it's so hard to, it's even harder to have that sense of, belonging and I know that from coming from a neurodiverse background and and it is hard to have that sense of belonging and then we're very easy at kicking people out of groups and we're just mm -hmm. as hard, just as bad at that in um, maternity care as well and you know women with new babies um I think when uh, are really susceptible to this so instead it should be not kind of what birth what kind of birth did you have it was how did you feel after your birth uh, did you make all the decisions? Did you feel like you had good control? Unfortunately, I think we'll find more women that say, no, they didn't and they don't feel great than they do that say, yes, they feel great. But actually we need to hear both voices. And as researchers, we need to hear both voices because then by doing that we can dig deep and go, well, what is it? Why do they feel so great and why do they feel so poor? And in my both my Masters, my PhD, but also my ongoing work as a as an early career researcher, that's kind of been the centre of my research: is how do women feel after their birth, and why, and what factors contribute to that. So, what, how can we change our maternity services to highlight that so we can get more positive experiences than negative experiences? And right now, in New South Wales, we so we published a. Uh, from the birth experience study, which was my postdoc project, we looked, we had over nearly 9,000 women do our survey, all, all birthing experiences. And from that, we found one in 10 women experienced obstetric violence. We published a paper on that. And with our paper and also maternity consumer organisations lobbying, we've managed to get a New South Wales inquiry into birth trauma. 
So this is a New, New South Wales Upper Amazing. House Inquiry into Birth Trauma. And the submissions, we're, we're filming this at the beginning of August, um, and those submissions close on the 11th of August. And this is an a, a opportunity for women across New South Wales to share their stories of birth trauma um, and for experts like myself to put forward submissions and to to present to that select committee as well, which which I'll be doing. And um, and for maternity clinicians who have witnessed it or have experienced it and they want to share their stories of it as well. And that's really important. Like this is the first time in Australia that women have been given this level of a voice. And we need to hear those mm-hmm. stories because if we don't hear those stories, then we can't look at what we need to bring about for change. Now, as researchers, we are pretty sure that we have some of the answers, but we don't have all of the answers because we've, all, we've got to come together both from women and from maternity clinicians and researchers and government. And this has given us the opportunity to do that right now. Mm, oh, and that's amazing. Like I'm so, I'm so glad because it's, it's awful that people are experiencing this kind of level of obstetric violence and it's, yeah, it's so prolific. And so shedding light on that is so important and I'm so glad. Yeah. 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 And in terms of language as well, like so many people in your book who are sharing their stories as well as podcasts I've listened to with people sharing their VBAC stories have had comments from the healthcare providers on, you know, do you want a dead baby or um, you're putting your, <laughs> yourself at risk, you're going to die, your baby's going to die, all of those kind of things that, you know, it's just so awful to say to someone in such a vulnerable state, like who's not going to, even if you're fully armed and prepared for for that because you've heard other people experience that when you're in a room and someone who maybe you have been working with, maybe is a trusted care for bride provider, maybe isn't someone that you've just met, but someone saying that to you about your baby, it's it's always going to make you feel feel awful. Um, and what are you meant to do when you yeah, can you talk that? to us? You know, because once you've heard that, yeah. you can no longer not hear it. And the whole aim yeah. of saying it is coercion. That's what it is. It's coercive control. When a healthcare provider says that, yep. um, well, why would you do that? You're only going to have, you know, do you want to have a dead baby? And all the many, many different varieties that I've, that I've both heard and um, witnessed and seen in my research studies. It, the, the whole aim is to guilt the woman into making the decision that the healthcare provider is happy with. Not to make the decision that yep. she is happy with, but the one that they are happy with. And yet, Great. So she makes that decision and you're happy as a healthcare provider and you go on. You go on with your day. You go on with your day. You go and feel great because you know what? You've got that woman to sign that consent form and book in for that cesarean. Go you. What Mm -hmm. does the woman do? She goes home (laughs) and she hears in her head over and over and over and over and over again, you were a bad mother for thinking that you should even choose Mm -hmm. that because your baby would die. And yet the chances of that happen mm-hmm. is just ludicrous. If we look at uterine rupture, 0.2% chance of it happening. And then from that 0.2% of it happening, 90% of babies survive. Like that's a ridiculous mm-hmm. amount of zeros that I can't even work out that quickly. Um, and <laughs> in fact, in the workshops that I yeah. do with maternity clinicians, I'll try and get them to work out that, those amount of zeros for me while we're talking. It is so rare um, that you, can't, you shouldn't even be using that as a threat. It's ridiculous mm-hmm. and it's bad and it should not be it happening. It happens so much, yeah. It, and mm-hmm. and it, there's nowhere that, that women can go. And what, in my feedback survey, I found that more than 50% of women had received hurtful comments. And I asked them what wow. those hurtful comments yeah. were and the dead baby card, we've even got a term for it. I mean, that's how ridiculous. In fact, there's two different yeah. terms uh, depending on what country you're in. So, you know, we have the dead baby card um, and then in other countries um, there's – it's called shroud waving because you wrap the baby in a shroud, right? A dead baby. So it's called shroud mm, waving. Like wow. I heard that from the wonderful Bashi Hazard, who's a human rights oh lawyer God. in childbirth. And she, that's the term that she used. And she's, um, <laughs> so I was like, what? I don't even heard that one. But yeah, there, there are terms for it. There shouldn't even be terms for it. it there's one mm. term for it, coercive no. control. <laughs> and that's, yep. then we should be throwing that back to the healthcare providers and saying, 
you can't be saying that. But at the time, you're right. At the time when if it's someone that you've met before or not and they throw that at you, it is like you've been slapped in the face and you are shocked. I would be shocked if someone said that to me. And I think I've got some pretty good comebacks. But I wouldn't have a good comeback at that point. I'd be like, Mm. yeah. Like, how dare you? <laughs> and yeah. then if you decide yeah. to go and not not be coercively controlled and say, no, I, I still want to have this option, maybe that's a VBAC or whatever it is, then you're the difficult woman. You're then labelled as the difficult mm-hmm. woman. Now, whenever I worked in healthcare, um, I loved looking after people that have been labelled as a difficult women because I thought, well, they're the people that I can relate to the most, to be honest. You know, if I turned up to a, <laughs> to a labour ward and they said, oh, and this woman, she's really difficult, she wants this, this and this, and I'd be like, oh, I'll go in there, that sounds great. Like, let me in there. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, I'm getting with her, I'm difficult. Um, and definitely I've, yeah. I've experienced bullying when I've worked as a midwife um, in, the, in the system, horrendous bullying. That is because, you know, I was the difficult one, that I would uh, encourage women to make their own choices um, and have births on their terms and not on hospital terms. And I got into trouble for that. So Mm -hmm. I can somewhat, I I can see the breeding ground of why these comments come out. But in my career, I can't ever imagine a time where I did say a comment like that. So you can stop yourself. Stop yourself completely because mm-hmm. it's actually not your birth. It's not your baby if you're the healthcare provider. Like, you're not going to be going home exactly. and caring for that baby. We want women who are going to be confident, mm-hmm. strong, and empowered mothers because being a mother is one of the most hardest, challenging, amazing at times. You know, obviously, we would never change it. We mm-hmm. love our children, but it pushes you to the edge. And the labor, the pregnancy and labor kind of is that is that preparation and we need women to be confident and strong and empowered mothers because being a mother is such an important job and it's so difficult to do at any time but in but physically draining in that first six weeks that first Mm -hmm. year and do we really want women who feel that they're guilty for making any decision or that they've been a failure and that they've just heard this hurtful comments all the time Absolutely not. You want people around you to support you with whatever your decision is, as long as you can make an informed decision. And that does also mean that you know what could go right and what could go wrong. You know, that's the whole brain type thing, you know, the benefits, risks um, type thing. You need to know both. You shouldn't just sugarcoat everything and say, I'm going to plan a, a VBAC at home and everything would always be absolutely fine. You can't sugarcoat that. You've got to know what are the challenges and what could be the difficulties in that most of the time they won't happen but you've got to know them so that you can make an informed decision so it goes both ways healthcare providers can give too much negative news coercive control and on the other side they cannot let you they can they can withhold information from you as well and it's delicate to get it right and i think we certainly need more research mm. on how we get that right mm. yeah that's such a good point could you give us a, before we finish up, a little takeaway kind of me- message or your takeaway thoughts for anyone out there who is wanting to have a VBAC? What can you, yeah, what can you say? You can definitely have the best birth after cesarean. What that looks like, what that ends up with, we don't know, but you can have the best birth after cesarean. And to do that, one of the things you need to do is to get the best team around you. You want people who are going to cheer you along the way. You want people who are going to be there to celebrate with you and to fill you with positivity and to believe in your ability to be able to have the best birth after cesarean. Oh, amazing. And completely agree. That team is so important. And I feel so happy that I've got mine. I feel so much this weight off my shoulders now that's all in place. And I feel so much more confident about how I'm going to feel emotionally after this birth. So um, yeah, I'm so happy. <laughs> Excellent. <Yeah. laughs> well, I wish you yeah. I wish you oh. all the luck. And and I think, you know, my advice to you as well is to, you know, to use those um, practices that I've got in the book 
um, on those drawing activities, yeah. like do them because they're really, really powerful. Yes, I love those images. <laughs> yeah, do those drawings, sit down with your partner um, and do them like do them separately but then come together and talk about them and then share share them with your team as well or even if it's just like the the, the, the takeaway stuff from it, like share that with your team mm. so they know what your ideal birth, your worst case birth and then your worst case made better would be because um, that's you having control. You know, that if mm-hmm. you, if everything goes the way that you want for your ideal, then that's ideal and that's wonderful. But if it doesn't, that you still got control because you've explored what that would look like and you're, you can then ask uh, and your healthcare providers will then know, your team will know what's really important to you if there are changes in your plan. Yeah, exactly. It's such a good exercise. I love that. Encourage everyone to get your book as well and <laughs> have a look at that part in particular. I loved that. Yeah, and hopefully I'll be um, sliding into your DMs in late December, early January, telling you my um, <laughs> my VBAC story or my empowered cesarean story as well. Awesome. <laughs> I look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, Hazel, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. It's been wonderful to speak to you and hear all of your expertise on this topic I'm so passionate about. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been a great chat with you today. I hope that you enjoyed this beautiful episode with Hazel. I know that I got so much out of chatting with her and she's such a beautiful wealth of knowledge on this topic that is vaginal birth after cesarean that I'm getting so increasingly passionate about the more that I learn. If you've had your own VBAC or you're on your own VBAC journey or are planning or considering one, I'd love to connect with you. You can reach out on the Instagram page at Definitely Baby Podcast. We can have a chat there i love talking all things feedback and birth in general if you're loving this series and the podcast in general i'd be so grateful if you could leave a review a written one on apple or you can just hit the little stars on the um, on the spotify app or whatever app you're listening on i would be so so grateful for that Uh, so you can head to our instagram to see more info and keep up to date with the series Hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. We've got another two VBAC experiences episodes coming out next week. So keep your eyes out to hear those five beautiful stories we'll be sharing then. Have a beautiful rest of your day and I'll catch you again then.